This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hi, I'm Greg Polson, and this is Cults. Today, we're going to be taking a deeper look at one of the most infamous cults in modern history, the Manson family. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. In part one of our two-part series on the Manson family, we focused on Manson himself, tracing the trajectory of the troubled child who grew up to become one of the most notorious cult leaders in American history. In today's episode, we'll learn more about the Manson family. Who were these young men and women who joined Manson's cult? How did Manson change them from law-abiding citizens into ruthless murderers? Stay tuned to find out. Due to the graphic nature of this material, listener discretion is advised. This episode contains discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It's not just that they murdered my family members and other people's precious family members. It's the fact that they have mentally invaded all of our lives. This is nothing to to want to aspire to be. Those are the haunting words of Deborah Tate, speaking about the members of a cult whose crimes have remained etched into the public consciousness for almost 50 years. This cult was led by Charles Manson, and its members were known as the Manson family. For the purposes of our show, we're using the term cult to refer specifically to destructive cults. Vanessa's going to be taking over on the psychology here and throughout the rest of the episode. Please note, Vanessa's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Okay, destructive cults. Destructive cults, unlike new religious movements, are branded as such because the cult members harm and murder both members of their own cult and unsuspecting outsiders. According to the psychologist Robert Lifton, destructive cults generally have three distinctive features. First, destructive cults have a charismatic leader who becomes an object of worship. Second, this cult leader takes advantage of the group members and uses them for sex and financial gain. And third is what Lifton called thought reform, or as it's known in popular culture, mind control. The destructive cult, known as the Manson family, originated in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco. After Manson got out of prison in March of 1967, he soon began dating the woman who gave him a place to live and became his first follower, Mary Brunner. Manson began observing and imitating hippie culture in order to recruit followers. He later described himself to an FBI agent as a mirror, reflecting what the kids wanted to see. He utilized the hippie concept of free love to convince Mary to let him bring more women into her home. This small group migrated to Los Angeles and grew exponentially larger. Manson had a knack for spotting troubled young people with malleable personalities and convincing them that he was the answer to all of their problems in life. One of his most well-known followers, Linda Kasabian, would later comment that when she first met Manson, she thought, this is what I've been looking for. Manson could pretend to be whatever his followers wanted him to be. Manson was so successful at recruiting followers that he eventually began using some of his male followers, like Charles Tex Watson, to help recruit others into the cult. At its height, Manson's cult had around 100 followers, with 25 to 30 devoted followers willing to do anything for him. Manson and his core followers began their murder spree on August 9th of 1969. August 9th of 1969 had been another hot and muggy day at the Spawn Ranch in Los Angeles, where Charlie Manson lived with his cult followers. But Manson had more on his mind than the heat. 
One of his followers, Bobby Bolsolet, was sitting in a jail cell, arrested for killing a music teacher and drug dealer named Gary Hinman. The longer Bolsolet sat in the cell, the more time he had to talk to the police. Manson didn't want Bolsolet talking to the police. And for good reason. Bolsolet wasn't the only one who had participated in Hinman's murder. On July 25th, only a few days earlier, Manson had been at Hinman's home right along with Beausoleil, demanding that he give them their money back over a drug deal gone bad. When Hinman didn't offer up the money and asked Manson why Manson's family members were beating him, Manson cut off Hinman's ear with a sword. Worried that Hinman would go to the police when they were done torturing him, Manson told Beausoleil, you know what to do. This was one of Manson's signature manipulation tactics. He never had to directly order one of his followers to commit murder. Not only could Manson persuade his followers to kill whoever he wanted, he could make it seem like it was their idea. Bolsolet stabbed Hinman on July 27th. He was assisted by two of Manson's devoted female followers, Susan Atkins and Mary Brunner, who took turns holding a pillow over Hinman's face. Beausoleil wrote the words political piggy in the dying man's blood and stamped a bloody paw print on the wall. Manson's family hoped the police would see the paw print and blame the Black Panthers for the murder. But Beausoleil left a fingerprint at the scene. On August 6th, 10 days after the murder, police discovered Beausoleil sleeping on the side of the road in the murdered man's car and arrested him. They tested his fingerprints and found a match. When Manson found out Beausoleil was in prison for Hinman's murder, he was terrified that Beausoleil would confess Manson's involvement to the police. Manson had spent most of his childhood and adult life in reform schools and prisons, and he didn't want to go back. He needed to create a series of random, copycat murders to distract the police. Someone needed to die. Someone rich, someone famous. Manson wasn't just worried about going back to prison. He also needed to maintain control over his followers, who believed he was a higher being, both Jesus and the devil. He liked to remind his followers that his name was Manson, or Son of Man, emphasizing his similarity to Jesus. The psychologist Robert Lifton noticed that cult leaders often set themselves up as spiritually endowed figures, elevated above the rest of mankind. He called this technique mystical manipulation. He considered it one of the key elements of thought reform or mind control employed by cult leaders. Another aspect of a cult leader's mystical manipulation of his cult often involves the cult leader setting himself up as a prophet. The cult leader will reframe coincidences to make it look like these events are the fulfillment of prophecies. The Manson family believed their leader was a prophet, and their prophet had predicted that an apocalyptic race war known as Helter Skelter was going to commence that summer. Manson took the name Helter Skelter from the Beatles' White Album, which dropped on November 22nd of 1968. The Beatles had titled the song Helter Skelter after an amusement park ride, but Manson convinced his followers that the Beatles were using the song as a dog whistle to warn the Manson family about the impending race war. This is another example of mystic manipulation. Manson twisted an ordinary song about a children's theme park ride into a prophecy of war. Manson preached that during Helter Skelter, African Americans would rise up against the white people who had mistreated them and murder them all. The only white people who would survive would be Manson's family, hidden safely away in a secret underground city in Death Valley. The summer was now almost over, and the African American populace had not risen up against the white oppressors. Manson couldn't let his followers think that he was wrong. After all, he was a divine being and infallible. Since it looked like African Americans weren't going to start a race war, maybe Manson's family needed to instigate it. Manson's family could commit a series of murders and get the Black Panthers to take the fall for their crimes. The racist reprisals from the government against the African American community would force African Americans to rise up and rebel. And if the police were busy dealing with a full-scale uprising, they wouldn't have time to dig into the murder of Gary Hinman. The Manson family could take advantage of the distraction to rescue Beausoleil, and Manson wouldn't have to go back to prison. Manson's followers found his post-apocalyptic prophecies to be so real, in part because of the hundreds of LSD trips they had undergone with him. Under the influence of LSD, they listened, 
rapt as Manson preached repeatedly about helter-skelter. They completely believed the apocalyptic race war was inevitable and that they would soon rule over and repopulate the world. So, on August 9th, when Manson told his followers that helter-skelter needed to happen, they were eager to do his bidding. Manson chose one of his male followers to lead the murders, Charles Tex Watson. Manson had created an odd hierarchical structure in the cult, over which he reigned supreme. He preached that children were purer than adults because they had not yet been corrupted by an evil society. Male children were to be respected above all and allowed to develop with as much freedom as they desired. Manson may have come up with this idea as a reaction to his own boyhood, which was filled with strict parental figures and reform school teachers. As a child, he loved breaking the rules. He probably would have enjoyed growing up in a cult without rules where he could do whatever he wanted. After male children came female children. The same hierarchical rule applied to adults. Women were meant to obey men. If the cult was going to commit murder, a male follower needed to lead. Manson had Bolsillet lead the killing of Gary Hinman. And now that Bolsillet was in prison, Manson needed another male follower to do his dirty work. And so, on that fateful August night, he approached Charles Tex Watson. Watson got his nickname, Tex, because he was in fact from a small Texas town, and he seemed destined for a promising future. He was a track athlete and an honor roll student. He was also a popular yell leader. Yell leaders function a bit like cheerleaders, using hand gestures during games to amp up the student body and encourage them to cheer and scream for their school's team. By August 9th of 1969, Watson's mind had been addled by hundreds of LSD trips, but he still longed to be a leader. In fact, Watson had been engaged in a power struggle with Manson. He was bossing other family members around, trying to prove he could also be one of the cult's leaders. Manson manipulated Watson's desire for power within the cult. He asked Watson if he really wanted to prove he was a leader. And of course, Watson wanted to prove himself. Manson then effectively guilt-tripped Watson by blaming him for the drug deal that had gone wrong in June of 1969 with a Black Panther who went by the street name Lotsapapa. When Watson stole from Lotsapapa and the drug dealer showed up demanding his money, Manson had shot Lotsapapa in the chest. Lotsapapa survived, but never reported the shooting to the police, and Manson initially believed he had killed him. Months later, Manson now used this past incident to his advantage. Manson had put himself at risk and killed Lotsapapa because of Watson's mistakes. Was Watson willing to return the favor? Was he willing to kill for Manson? It didn't take Watson long to make up his mind. He quickly agreed to lead the murders. He was ready to incite helter-skelter and the apocalyptic race war. He just needed to pick a target. Manson had just the target in mind. For the past year, he had aspired to become a famous singer and songwriter. He hoped that record producer Terry Melcher, son of the actress Doris Day, would make him famous. Manson had driven with Terry to his home several times and played his music in the car, hoping to charm the producer. But Terry was dismissive of Manson's music. He refused to give Manson a record deal and cut ties with him in the summer of 1969, leaving Manson livid. But Manson didn't forget Melcher's address, 10050 Cielo Drive. He knew Melcher no longer lived there, but it was an expensive property, so whoever rented it was likely to be rich and famous, a perfect target for the family's murders. Manson also hoped to terrify Terry Melcher and get him back for not giving Manson his record deal. Manson wanted Tex Watson to murder the residents of 10050 Cielo Drive, but he didn't want to get blamed for the killings. So he used that same manipulation tactic that had always worked so well for him. He managed to convince Tex Watson that killing everyone at the house on Cielo Drive was Watson's idea. Manson asked Watson where he was thinking of going to commit the copycat murders. Had Watson considered Terry Melcher's old house? After Manson put the idea in his head, Watson then proposed that he would, in fact, go to 10050 Cielo Drive. Manson's ability to manipulate Watson was so powerful that even when Watson was interviewed years later by an FBI agent, he still believed the killings were his own idea. Manson then selected three female followers to accompany Watson. In the Manson family, women were supposed to do what men told them to do, without question. 
Manson didn't tell the women they would be committing murder that night. He knew that they would do what Watson ordered them to do, no matter what. Cult leaders use thought reform techniques to break down followers' abilities to think independently. Having lost the ability to think for themselves, the followers then rely on the cult's leaders to critically analyze situations and make moral choices for them. To assist Watson in the killings, Manson picked one of his first followers, Patricia Krenwinkel. On the surface, Krenwinkel was the opposite of someone who would end up in a cult. She had a seemingly normal middle-class childhood. She was a sweet, well-behaved child who never got into trouble at school. She had swimming and dancing lessons. She attended church. But beneath the surface, Krenwinkel felt isolated and lonely. Her parents separated when she was 15. She switched high schools three times and never felt like she fit in. And she had an older half-sister who proved to be a bad influence. Krenwinkel's older sister introduced her to marijuana and LSD. Eventually, Krenwinkel dropped out of college and moved in with her sister and nephew. But her older sister was unstable and made several attempts to kill herself. Krenwinkel found herself desperate for direction in life and for someone who would love her. When Manson met Krenwinkel, he quickly noticed the 19-year-old's loneliness and lack of self-confidence. Despite being 13 years older than her, Manson used the techniques he had learned from pimps in prison to seduce Krenwinkel and make her believe that he was her soulmate. He could offer her all the love and attention she needed. He could give her a sense of purpose. Krenwinkel agreed to leave her sister's apartment in Manhattan Beach with Manson, convinced that he was the perfect boyfriend. By the time she realized that Manson wasn't who he claimed to be, Manson was already making her afraid to leave. Manson used techniques common among both pimps and domestic abusers to keep Krenwinkel and the other women from leaving, a combination of flattery, fear, and violence. He would make Krenwinkel stand still and throw knives at her, terrifying her. He shamed her in front of the other women. Manson would make Krenwinkel stand naked in the middle of the other followers and call her ugly and stupid and nothing. Robert Lifton cites shaming and confession as two additional mind control techniques used by cult leaders. Forcing Krenwinkel to confess her inadequacies in front of the group allowed Manson to identify her psychological weak points. Shaming Krenwinkel broke down her confidence and forced her to remain loyal to the cult. Krenwinkel's loyalty to Manson was tested in the days leading up to August 9th. Two of Manson's followers, who against his rules had become a couple, decided to leave the cult after finding out about Gary Hinman's murder. They asked Krenwinkel to come with them. But Krenwinkel had tried to run away from Manson before. Manson found her easily. She feared that if she tried to run away with the couple, Manson would just find her again. The couple left without her. It was a decision Krenwinkel would regret in the years to come. The next woman that Manson picked to participate in the murders was Susan Atkins. Manson had met 20-year-old Atkins in the fall of 1967 after he got out of prison on parole. Atkins had been a troubled child whose mother died of cancer when she was only 15. She spent her late teens cycling through abusive boyfriends and relying on drugs and alcohol to cope with her deep longing for love and attention. By the time she met Manson, Atkins had already spent time as a topless vampire dancer for a group of Satanists. She had a love of music and was drawn to Manson when she saw him playing the guitar. Manson once again used the techniques he had learned from the pimps in prison to figure out that Atkins was a vulnerable young woman who had issues with her father. He had sex with Atkins, ordering her to pretend that she was actually having sex with her dad. Manson told Atkins that she could now shed her old identity and her old family and join a new family, the Manson family. This is yet another example of one of the mind control techniques commonly used by cult leaders like Manson, isolating a follower and convincing her to give up her identity to the group. Susan Atkins became one of Manson's most devoted followers, willing to do anything for him. She had already helped Bolsa kill Gary Hinman a couple of weeks ago in July. Manson knew she could stomach the spree murders. Manson also needed a getaway driver, someone with a legal driver's license. So Manson chose Linda Kasabian. Linda met Manson in 1968. She had recently split from her husband, Bob, when she met Tex Watson, who slept with her and recruited her into the family. Unlike most of the Manson family members, Linda had a valid California driver's license. This piqued Manson's interest in Linda, and he invited her to join the family. 
Linda's driver's license was the reason that Manson asked her to join the family in the first place. And now, it was the reason he wanted her to take part in the murders. Tex Watson, Linda Kasabian, Susan Atkins, and Patricia Krenwinkel all clambered into a yellow 1959 Ford. Watson brought with him a length of rope, a knife, and a 22 caliber high-standard buntline revolver. Watson, not Linda, was also the one driving. He was the only one who knew their destination. As the yellow Ford wound its way through Benedict Canyon to 10050 Cielo Drive, Kasabian, Atkins, and Krenwinkel wondered aloud what they would be doing that August night. Maybe they would be stealing cars or creepy crawling, Manson's term for breaking and entering into random strangers' homes at night without waking them. The women had no idea that they were about to commit one of the most notorious spree murders in American history. We'll return to our story in just a moment. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, our story continues. Sharon Tate was born in 1943, the eldest of three girls. Her father was an army intelligence colonel, so the family never stayed in one place for long. Due to the constant moving around, she was particularly close to her parents and her two younger sisters, Deborah and Patty. Sharon began winning modeling competitions when she was just a baby. She started modeling and acting in commercials in her late teens. She soon moved on to small roles on shows like The Man From U.N.C.L.E. and Mr. Ed. In 1965, she scored her first film role as Odile in The Eye of the Devil. That film was followed by a role in The Fearless Vampire Killers, where she met and fell in love with her director and co-star, Roman Polanski. The couple soon married. Sharon proceeded to take roles in several more films, including the role she's most famous for, Jennifer North in Valley of the Dolls. But by August 9th of 1969, her burgeoning film career wasn't the only thing on her mind. Sharon and Polanski had recently rented their friend Terry Melcher's home at 10050 Cielo Drive. Sharon was eight months pregnant with her first child, and she was excitedly preparing her home for her baby boy. Sharon had just returned alone to Los Angeles after shooting her latest film, 13 Chairs. Polanski was still wrapping up shooting on Day of the Dolphin in London. Since Polanski was away, Sharon often invited her friends over to visit. After all, there was plenty of room for guests at the house. On August 9th, Sharon had several friends keeping her company. Wojtek Frakowski was visiting with his girlfriend, Abigail Folger, a social worker and heiress to the Folger's coffee fortune. Sharon also invited over her ex-boyfriend, celebrity hairstylist Jay Sebring. Surprisingly, there were no hard feelings between Sharon and Jay after she left him to be with Polanski. They remained good friends, and Jay visited her all the time. August 9th had been an ordinary, uneventful day for the group of friends. Sharon was worn out and spent much of the afternoon napping. She talked to Polanski in London to let him know that she had enrolled him in a class for new parents. Abigail Folger bought a bicycle. Sharon's handyman, Frank Guerrero, painted the baby's nursery. No one wanted to cook, so they all went out to dinner. After Sharon and her friends got back to 10050 Cielo Drive, they prepared for bed. Abigail Folger retired to her guest room. She changed into a white nightgown and settled down to read a book. Frikowski went to sleep on the couch in the living room. Sharon and Jay stayed up chatting in the master bedroom. At about 11.45 in the evening, an enterprising 18-year-old named Steve Parent drove up to 10050 Cielo Drive. 
He was trying to earn money for college and hoped to sell his clock radio to 19-year-old William Gerritsen. Gerritsen was working as the caretaker of the property and lived in the guest house. Steve was able to get into 10050 Cielo Drive easily. There was no security to keep out intruders, and he was able to buzz himself in through the electronic gate. Steve then drove down the circular driveway to the front of the house, parked, and walked over to the guest house where Gerritsen lived. Steve eagerly showed Gerritsen how well his clock worked, plugging it in and setting the time. But Gerritsen didn't want to buy the clock, so he offered Steve a beer. When Steve unplugged his clock and left Gerritsen's guest house, Steve's clock showed 12.15. It was just past midnight. Another car was winding its way up Cielo Drive, a yellow 1959 Ford. Tex Watson drove Linda Kasabian, Susan Atkins, and Patricia Krenwinkel up the cul-de-sac and stopped the car at the gate for 10050 Cielo Drive. The Manson family members couldn't see the main house from the gate, but they could see a fence in the distance decorated with twinkling Christmas lights. They'd been put there by Terry Melcher's girlfriend, the actress Candace Bergman, before she and Melcher had moved out. Sharon liked the lights and kept them up. Watson cut the phone lines at the house with bolt cutters, then backed the Ford down the hill, parking it out of sight. It was time for Watson to let the women know what they were going to be doing that night. Watson explained that the four of them were going to scale the fence, go into the house, and murder every living person inside. It may seem strange that Krenwinkel, Atkins, and Kasabian did not get upset when Watson broke the news. After all, they suspected they were going out on an expedition to steal cars, not commit murder. But life in the cult had broken down the personalities of the women and their ability to think for themselves. If the women had previously believed murder was wrong, it didn't matter to them at that point. Their guiding principle in life was the doctrine of obedience that Manson had instilled in them. Manson had been correct that he didn't need to bother telling the women what they would be doing that night. Manson had successfully stripped the women of the ability to think for themselves or assess the morality of any given situation. Manson now made decisions for the women and determined what was moral and right. So if Manson wanted the women to kill for him, then they would follow orders. Watson, Krenwinkel, Atkins, and Kasabian climbed over the fence bordering the property, ready to kill whoever was in the house. But then, Atkins saw a car's headlights coming toward them. Steve Parent was now driving back to the front gate. Disappointed, he wasn't able to sell his radio. The four Manson family members hid in the bushes. Steve rolled down his window and pressed the button to open the front gate. Watson approached him with his blunt line revolver in one hand and his knife in the other. The 18-year-old begged for his life, promising not to tell anyone that he had seen the Manson followers. Watson didn't care. He shot Steve four times. Steve died instantly. Surprisingly, no one in the house heard the gunshots. Gerritsen in the guest house didn't hear them either. He was listening to music. With the potential witness dead, Watson, Krenwinkel, Atkins, and Kasabian crept down the curved driveway and through the front lawn to the main house. Watson made Kasabian check the house for open windows. She walked around the house, then returned to Watson and claimed that none of the windows were open. But Watson noticed one of the entry hall windows was partially open. He cut through the window screen, removed it, and opened the window. Watson ordered Kasabian to go back down the driveway and keep a lookout in case one of the neighbors had called the police. Kasabian headed back down the driveway. Meanwhile, Watson, Atkins, and Krenwinkel climbed through the window into the house. The three Manson followers crossed through the hall and stepped into the living room. They found Frakowski asleep on the couch. Watson told Susan Atkins to go check the rest of the house, and the sound of his voice woke up Frakowski. He asked who was there. Watson kicked Frakowski hard in the head, likely leaving Frakowski concussed. Watson said, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. He warned Frakowski that he would kill him if he yelled for help. The women had been instructed to bring knives with them that evening, and it was at this moment that Krenwinkel realized she didn't have her knife. She ran back outside and down the driveway to Kasabian. Kasabian didn't need her knife since she was the lookout, so Krenwinkel took Kasabian's knife and rejoined Watson in the living room. Susan Atkins wandered through the house, checking the rooms. She spotted Abigail Folger in the guest bedroom. Folger was used to guests dropping by Sharon's house at odd hours, so she wasn't perturbed to see Atkins. 
Atkins smiled and waved at her. Abigail waved back. Atkins spotted Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring chatting in the main bedroom. She returned to Watson and told him what she had seen. Watson instructed Atkins and Krenwinkle to corral everyone into the living room. Atkins and Krenwinkle brought Sharon, Abigail, and Jay into the living room at knife point. Watson tied Jay's hands with rope. Jay complained that Watson was hurting him, and Watson threatened to kill Jay if he spoke another word. Watson tied a rope about Jay's neck and looped it over the ceiling beam. He tied the other end of the rope around Sharon's neck. Sharon began to cry, which irritated Watson. Jay spoke out against Watson's treatment of his pregnant friend, so Watson shot him in the stomach. As Jay lay bleeding on the brown living room carpet, Watson demanded money from his captives. Abigail Folger gave them $70 from her purse. Watson grew angry. He wanted to bring Manson back a big payout, and this wealthy movie star and her friends weren't giving him any real money. Watson took his frustration out on Jay Sebring. Watson stabbed Jay repeatedly until he died. Sharon, Abigail, and Frakowski realized that they were next. Frakowski, still woozy from getting kicked in the head, struggled to free himself. Watson ordered Susan Atkins to kill Frakowski, but he wriggled his hands out of their bindings. He grappled with her, trying to reach the front door. Atkins stabbed him repeatedly in the legs. Kasabian heard Frakowski screaming in pain from the driveway and walked up to the house. She stopped outside the house just in time to see Frakowski stagger out the front door, Watson chasing him. Horrified, Kasabian could only watch as Watson stabbed Frakowski over and over until he lay unmoving on the front lawn. At this point, Kasabian was the only one of the four Manson followers who had the moral awareness to be appalled and speak out against what was going on. She yelled to Susan Atkins in the living room that there were people coming, hoping this would be enough to get her companions to leave. But Atkins shrugged off Kasabian's warning. She claimed there was nothing she could do. So Kasabian ran away back down the driveway. Abigail Folger attempted to escape next. Krenwinkle was holding Abigail at knife point, but Abigail made a break for it, racing down the front lawn. Krenwinkle didn't let her get far. She chased Abigail down and slammed her to the ground. Krenwinkle stabbed Abigail over and over, dyeing her white nightgown red with blood. Krenwinkle wasn't sure if she'd actually killed Abigail. Watson had finished killing Frakowski, so Krenwinkle asked Watson to check if Abigail was dead. Watson ordered Krenwinkle to see if there was anyone they needed to kill in the guest house while he finished off Abigail. Krenwinkle was terrified of disobeying an order, but she also didn't want to round up more people to kill. So she walked over to the guest house where Watson couldn't see her, waited a minute, and walked back. She told Watson there was no one in the guest house. This is the only reason William Gerritsen, the house caretaker, survived the massacre. Watson stabbed Abigail several more times, ensuring she was dead. He then went back to the living room and rejoined Susan Atkins. Sharon Tate's three friends were dead. She was the only one left. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps to detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And now, back to the story. Sharon Tate was the only one left alive at 10050 CLO Drive. Sharon begged and pleaded with the Manson family members for them to save her unborn son's life. If they wanted, they could even take her hostage, wait two weeks for her baby to be born, and then kill her. But Atkins and Watson didn't care. 
They were high on meth, which made them aggressive, and too indoctrinated in the cult's belief system to care about an outsider's ideas of right and wrong. Susan Atkins told Sharon that she would get no mercy from her. Atkins stabbed Sharon Tate 16 times. She cried for her mother as she died. Everyone at 10050 Cielo Drive lay dead. But Susan Atkins remembered that they weren't done yet. Manson had told Atkins before they drove off from Spawn Ranch to make sure that the followers did something witchy at the crime scene. Atkins took the towel that had been used to tie Frakowski's hands and wrote the word pig on the front door in blood. Atkins was mimicking what she had seen Beausoleil write on the wall after killing Gary Hinman. Now finished, Watson, Atkins, and Krenwinkle left the house and walked down the driveway. They met up with Kasabian, who was waiting for them by the yellow Ford. On the drive back down the road, they threw their bloody clothes and the murder weapons down a steep hill. They stopped on a side street and hosed themselves off in Rudolph Weber's yard, washing away the blood. Weber heard the commotion and found the killers outside in his yard. The four Manson followers got in the car and sped away, but he took note of their license plate. In the car, the killers didn't focus on the morality of their actions. They were more concerned with mundane issues. Krenwinkel's hand hurt from all the stabbing. Atkins had misplaced her knife. Watson's gun handle broke when he used it as a bludgeon, leaving possible evidence behind. Nobody was happy with Kasabian's lack of participation in the murders. Manson was not happy with any of the followers when they came back to the ranch. They had almost no money for him, and from the sound of it, they hadn't created a dramatic enough crime scene. Manson asked whether any of the killers felt regret about the crimes they just committed. They claimed they didn't feel bad about it at all. Manson drove back to 10050 Cielo Drive himself, wiping down the fingerprints and dressing up the crime scene. He spread an American flag on the couch near Sharon's corpse, confident the juxtaposition of the American flag and dead pregnant woman would get lots of media attention. The next day, the Hollywood community was roiled by the news of the murders of Sharon Tate and her friends. The innocent groundskeeper, William Gerritsen, was arrested for murder. But although Sharon Tate's death was all over the papers on August 10th, Charles Manson wasn't satisfied. The police hadn't made the connection he wanted them to make to the Black Panthers and to Gary Hinman's murder. The Tate murders weren't going to be enough to start Manson's race war. In order to instigate Manson's helter-skelter, he needed more people to die. On the evening of August 10th, Manson brought together Watson, Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Kasabian. He also brought two additional followers, Clem Stevens and Leslie Van Houten. Like the Tate killers, Stevens and Van Houten were among Manson's most devoted followers. At 19 years old, Van Houten was the youngest in the group of assembled Manson family members. Leslie Van Houten grew up in a middle-class family, but began using drugs and running away from home at the age of 15. She met Manson in 1968 through Beausoleil. Manson liked to have Van Houten transcribe his song lyrics in shorthand. But on August 10th of 1969, Manson had a different task in mind for Van Houten and the others. Manson explained that Watson, Kasabian, Krenwinkel, and Atkins had bungled the murders on August 9th. So tonight, Manson was going to go along for the ride with his followers and make sure they did things properly. He hoped to guide his followers into committing at least two copycat killings that night. Manson directed the car crammed with seven people to the house of Lino and Rosemary LaBianca on Waverly Drive in Los Feliz. Lino and Rosemary were hardworking business owners. Lino was a grocery store owner and Rosemary was the co-owner of a boutique. They had a loving marriage and they were close to their grown children. They had no idea that the Manson family often attended parties at their neighbor Harold True's house. Manson believed that the people who lived on Waverly Drive were rich. He picked out the LaBiancas because he assumed they had to be wealthy enough to get the attention of the police and the press. Manson and Watson entered through the LaBiancas' unlocked back door. They found Lino sleeping on the couch and roused him at gunpoint. Manson assured Lino that this was just a robbery and asked who else was in the house. Lino told Manson that his wife was in the bedroom. With Watson holding Lino hostage, Manson located Rosemary and brought her out into the living room with Lino. Manson took Rosemary's wallet, 
then brought Krenwinkel and Leslie Van Houten into the house. Manson ordered his followers to stick Rosemary in the bedroom and make sure that everybody did something. Manson may have said that to ensure that everyone there shared culpability for what happened. Manson then returned to the car with Linda Kasabian, Susan Atkins, and Clem Stevens. He drove off on the hunt for another murder target. Watson put a pillowcase over Lino's head, gagged him, and tied him up with lamp cords. He then bound and gagged Rosemary with lamp cords in the bedroom. Krenwinkel grabbed a kitchen knife and went into the bedroom with Rosemary. She didn't want to kill more people after killing Abigail Folger, but she was more afraid of what Manson would do to her if she disobeyed him than she was of committing more murders. As Krenwinkel and Van Houten waited in the bedroom, Watson stabbed Lino to death with a bayonet that Manson had given him. Rosemary heard her husband's cries and struggled with her captors. Krenwinkel began stabbing her with the kitchen knife. Watson came into the bedroom and stabbed Rosemary with the bayonet, killing her. This time, Manson's followers wanted to make sure he got the dramatic crime scene he asked for. Watson carved the word war into Lino's abdomen. Krenwinkel stuck a fork in Lino's stomach and a knife in his throat. Van Houten wrote the words, death to pigs and rise on the walls in blood. Van Houten hadn't done much to participate in the actual murders at this point. Mindful of Manson's order that all of them participate in the killings, Watson made Van Houten pull up Rosemary's dress and stab her repeatedly, even though she was already dead. Manson's followers spotted a bag of change and grabbed it. When it came to stealing money from their victims for Manson, every penny counted. They got hungry and hunted for food in the murdered couple's fridge, feasting on their watermelon and drinking their chocolate milk. Before the followers left, Krenwinkel wrote the words helter-skelter in blood on that same refrigerator. These two words would be the key to unlocking the secrets of the Manson family and securing Charles Manson's conviction for murder. Manson thought the police would see the literal blood writing on the wall and blame the African-American community for a series of copycat murders. But initially, the police had no idea that the murders of Gary Hinman, Sharon Tate and her friends, and the LaBiancas were connected. In fact, on August 12th of 1969, police told reporters that there was no connection between the Tate and the LaBianca murders. They thought they had three different cases and three different sets of killers. On the one hand, Manson had failed to start Helter Skelter, but on the other hand, it soon began to look like he was going to get away with all of it. But the police were on to Manson for one of his relatively more minor crimes, car theft. Manson and his followers had been stealing cars and transforming them into dune buggies, all part of his plan to find his prophesized underground city where they could wait out the apocalyptic race war. When Manson was initially arrested on August 16th, it wasn't for murder, it was for car theft. Manson wasn't the only one arrested. 25 of his followers were as well. One of the followers arrested was Susan Atkins. Susan Atkins was always the one who liked to show off and who needed attention and approval from others. Atkins began to brag to her cellmates about participating in the killings. When Atkins' cellmate Virginia asked about how she felt after committing the murders, Atkins replied that she felt tired, elated, and at peace, because she knew this was the beginning of Helter Skelter. Susan Atkins' confession to Virginia showed just how much Manson's cult doctrines had warped her sense of identity. She told Virginia that in killing the pregnant Sharon Tate, she had been killing a part of herself. Atkins' confession was the break that investigators needed to connect the Tate and LaBianca murders to one group of killers, the Manson family. Charles Manson, Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Leslie Van Houten, and Patricia Krenwinkel were all arrested and charged with murder. Kasabian, disgusted and horrified by the murders, offered to turn state's witness. In return for freely offering her witness testimony, the prosecution granted her immunity. June 15, 1970, marked the beginning of Manson's trial. It was a circus that captivated America, and the trial was featured every night on television. Manson treated each appearance in court like a performance. He constantly misbehaved in the courtroom. At one point, he even attempted to attack the judge by rushing at him, armed with a pencil, while screaming, quote, someone should cut your head off, old man, unquote. 
During the trial, Manson used every ounce of control over his three co-defendants to get them to assist in causing disruptions. He gave Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten specific instructions on how to behave. Manson had the women sing one day and scream nonsense the next. He had them shave their heads. He carved an X into his forehead and had them duplicate the symbol. Many of Manson's devoted followers who weren't on trial for murder spent their time camped out outside the courthouse, giving interviews to the press. Some of his followers went so far as to threaten and poison witnesses. Barbara Hoyt, a Manson follower who had agreed to talk to the prosecution, was offered a trip to Hawaii by several of Manson's followers in exchange for refusing to testify. When Barbara got to Hawaii, her supposed friends tricked her into eating a hamburger with a potentially lethal dose of LSD. Barbara survived and became an eager witness for the prosecution. As his ultimate gambit, Manson even wanted his co-defendants to announce to the court that they committed the murders themselves without any involvement from Manson. Van Houten's defense lawyer, Ronald Hughes, recognized that Manson was manipulating and controlling his client. Given how young Van Houten was, Hughes thought he could get her acquitted. But Ronald Hughes may have been a little too perceptive about Charles Manson for his own good. Before closing arguments, Hughes disappeared while on a weekend camping trip. He was last seen on November 28th. His body was found the same day that every single defendant received the death penalty. Although the cause of Robert Hughes' death has never been definitively solved, an anonymous Manson family member called up Vincent Bugliosi, the prosecutor of the Tate-LaBianca murder case, and told him that the Manson family had killed the defense attorney. Even with their leader behind bars, Manson's family was willing to kill for him. None of the Manson family members remained on death row for long. In February of 1972, after California abolished the death penalty, Manson, Watson, Krenwinkel, Atkins, and Van Houten all had their sentences commuted to life in prison with the possibility of parole. It was only once they had spent time in prison, away from Manson's influence, that these particular followers began to think for themselves and take on new identities. Watson converted to Christianity and became a popular minister. However, an FBI agent who interviewed Watson wasn't sure whether his conversion was genuine or whether he was angling to get out on parole. Despite Watson's efforts to leave behind his identity as a Manson family member, the California Parole Board still considers him a risk to society. They most recently denied his parole in October of 2016. Susan Atkins became a born-again Christian as well, trading one form of devotion for another. She died of cancer in prison in 2009. Bobby Bolsillet became a different type of fanatic and joined the Aryan Brotherhood, a white supremacist prison gang. He was denied parole in 2016. It wasn't until Patricia Krenwinkel had spent time on death row that she began to think for herself. Learning that Manson had sold her to another prisoner in a card game marked a turning point for Krenwinkel in the rediscovery of her own identity. She claims that she has regained her sense of self, and with it, all the remorse that she initially couldn't allow herself to feel for her terrible crimes. She is now a model prisoner and a mentor for several prison groups. Leslie Van Houten, the youngest of the convicted murderers, has also become a model prisoner and openly expressed remorse for the Manson family killings. Van Houten credits her father for helping her regain her grip on reality and her own moral code. Her lawyer pointed out at her 2013 hearing that her value system has completely transformed since falling under Manson's sway in 1969. In 2016, Van Houten was recommended for parole, but her parole was blocked by Governor Jerry Brown at the request of the victim's family members, who believe her to be an unrepentant killer. On August 31st of 2017, Van Houten applied for parole again based on a change in California law regarding youth offender parole hearings. The new law allows young men and women who were under the age of 23 when they committed their crimes to ask the parole board to take their age into consideration. The reason behind the new law stems from the fact that young people have diminished culpability, greater impulsivity, and aren't as capable as adults of understanding the consequences of their actions. 
The California Parole Board was charged with the tough decision of determining whether Van Houten truly changed her thinking and earned her freedom. And September 6th of 2017, she was recommended for parole once again. And as of this recording, we're waiting to see if the parole board and Governor Brown change their minds. It's possible that Leslie Van Houten could be released in 2018. And though Manson's jailed followers eventually renounced him, Others remained loyal to their cult leader even after he went to prison. Part of the reason Manson's jailed followers may have reached a point where they could denounce him is precisely because they were in jail. Their physical imprisonment freed them to think for themselves. But for some, the thought reform techniques used by destructive cult leaders like Manson can prove impossible to overcome. Mary Brunner, Manson's first follower, felt guilty about testifying against the Manson family at the murder trial. She and several other family members were caught and sent to prison for stealing guns to hijack a plane and free Manson in 1971. She got out in 1977 and disappeared from the public eye. Whether she ever managed to recover her own sense of identity, we'll never know. Lynette Fromm, known in the Manson family as Squeaky, went to prison in 1975 after attempting to assassinate President Ford. But prison wasn't enough to shake her devotion to Manson. She was imprisoned alongside fellow Manson family follower Sandra Good, and the two referred to themselves as Sisters in the Church of Charles Manson. Fromm's dedication to Manson was so unwavering that she broke out of prison on December 23, 1987, to see him when she heard he had cancer. She was recaptured and finally released on parole in December of 2009. She moved back to New York. When a reporter called her in 2017 asking about Manson, she hung up the phone. Linda Kasabian, whose testimony against her fellow Manson family members was crucial in obtaining their convictions, disappeared into a life of obscurity. In 1994, she had started a family and was living somewhere on the East Coast. It has been 48 years since the Manson family killings. Manson's family members either remain in jail or have disappeared from the public view. Yet our thoughts still linger on the tragically short lives of Sharon Tate, Wojtek Frakowski, Abigail Folger, Jay Sebring, and the LaBiancas. What kind of lives might they have led if Manson hadn't ordered them killed? And what kind of lives might Manson's jailed followers have led if they had never met him? Unfortunately, they and we will never know. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Join us next Tuesday as we delve into the twisted psychology behind the Heaven's Gate cult. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, production assistance by Maggie Admire, Joel Stein, and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Jeanette Manning and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.